This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal, and I'm Jess Khanam. And I'm Jamal Dejani. Jamal, we have lots of news today, including breaking news. We, there have been two explosions outside of the uh, Hamid Karzai Air Base and airport in Kabul. There have been casualties to both U.S. servicemen. We don't know how many, and there may it also be casualties to U.S. citizens. The situation on the ground is very fluid. It's very dynamic. From the reports that I'm getting, it's also very gruesome. No one has taken firm responsibility yet, but it looks like it's uh, the work of ISIS-K, which is an offshoot of the original ISIS from Syria, but the sworn enemy of the Taliban. The United States is scheduled to get out in a few more days, Jamal, basically 48 hours plus minus, and there's still 1,500 Americans and tens of thousands of Afghans who uh, who are waiting to get out of this situation. So it's pretty grim. We're going to be talking about that a little bit later today, Jamal. But the drumbeats uh, of war are beating from the apartheid uh, regime of Israel. There's more threatening talk coming from the Israelis towards uh, Gaza. Naftali Bennett is in the United States today meeting with uh, President Biden, maybe as we speak, trying to put more pressure on the United States to start up, to stop rather, the Iran nuclear deal. You just completed a really extraordinary interview with Mr. Samuel Hickey. He's an analyst for the Center of Arms Control and Nonproliferation. He just wrote an article about this in the Bulletin of Atomic of the Atomic Scientists. It's a very interesting article. I had a chance to read it. We'll be looking at that interview. And then afterwards, you know, we're going to talk about Palestine. We're going to talk about uh, Mahmoud Abbas and his shenanigans. And we're going to hear from uh, Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib and her warning to Mahmoud Abbas. So there's, there's a lot to cover today. Yeah, we have a lot to cover. Uh, we'll start with the interview with Samuel Hickey. He's a research analyst, as you've mentioned, at the Center for Arms, Arms Control and Non-Proliferation. And he argues in his article and during our interview mm. against what Naftali Bennett, the Israeli prime minister, who is now in Washington, D.C., by the way, he was supposed to meet with Biden just a few minutes ago, and his meeting was postponed. Yeah, of course. Because Biden is in the situation room dealing with what's going on in Afghanistan. But eventually, he will meet, he will meet with him. And uh, the purpose of the meeting, uh, of course, is to convince Biden to abandon his plan to re-enter the Iran nuclear deal. Let's uh, listen to uh, Mr. Hickey. Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett, who is currently in the United States, is set to meet with President Biden on Thursday, said that he will work to convince Biden to abandon his plan to re-enter the Iran nuclear deal. He further added that he will tell President Biden that it's time to stop the Iranians, to stop this thing, not to give them a lifeline in the form of re-entering into an expired nuclear deal. The deal is no longer relevant, even by the standards of those who once thought it was. Our guest, Samuel Hickey, is a research analyst at the Center for Arms Control and Non-Proliferation. His areas of focus include the geopolitics of nuclear power developments in the Middle East region, nuclear diplomacy, and non-proliferation. Welcome to Arab Talk, Samuel. Thank you so much for having me. So you've recently published an article in the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientist arguing the opposite. The title of your article is How Iran's uh, Research Reactors Prove the Nuclear Deal is Still Working. You wrote an under-examined success story for the 2015 Iran nuclear deal. Negotiations is the effective blocking of Tehran's ability to collect plutonium for a nuclear bomb. Not only has the nuclear deal known officially as the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action been effective in constraining Iran's program, but it could suitably adapted provide a standard of guidance for research reactor construction that would lower proliferation risks worldwide. Please explain why you are right 
and the Israeli prime minister is wrong? Sure. So let me first start with just explaining a little bit more about the Iran nuclear deal. So first off, it's a multilateral agreement. So this wasn't just a deal made between the United States and Iran. There were a number of other countries that were involved in this negotiation and who also, you know, made exchanges here. So this deal was made up of, you know, China, France, Germany, the United Kingdom, Russia, and also the United States and Iran. So there, this is a whole, oh, sorry, in Germany as well. This is a whole, you know, host of countries that, you know, decided that this was the right course of action. So at its core, uh, the nuclear deal is an exchange. So Iran agreed to put certain constraints on its nuclear program and enhance verification and oversight and exchange. They re relieved, uh, sorry, they received sanctions relief. So this is not just U.S. sanctions relief. This was worldwide sanctions relief from the United uh, from the United Nations. Now, for the United States part, it only lifted nuclear related sanctions. So sanctions on Iran's ballistic missile program and other regional activities. Those all remained on. This was just about the nuclear program. Um, this deal also granted the most insight into a nuclear program in history. And there are, as I've written in this piece, there are lessons from the JCPOA that should be expanded across, across the world. I mean, it is truly the new gold standard in how to verify that a nuclear, um, you know, that a country cannot pursue a nuclear weapon without us having sufficient time to do something about it. And that's that's the one of the those are some of the key things. Um, one thing I would like to add is this nuclear deal also established some new principles. So a key one is that civilian nuclear programs should be commensurate to their energy or related needs. Right. So there are all there are a whole host of activities that can you know be put under a ostensibly civilian nuclear program, but that could be doing the work you know leading towards a military a military program. This says, you know, you cannot enrich to a level that is not necessary for, you know, electricity producing purposes, or you don't need plutonium if you don't have a civilian reason for it. So there are a whole host of things that have gone into this deal that really do make it the, the number, the gold standard in nonproliferation agreements. You wrote that there are two pathways to get the fissile material to uh, fuel a nuclear bomb. The first is to enrich uh, uranium, and the second is to recover plutonium from the spent fuel of a reactor. The JCPOA blocked both pa pathways. Please explain how. Sure. So, as, as mentioned, there are two pathways to get to a nuclear bomb. One is through enriching uranium. So essentially what that means is concentrating the chain reacting isotope of uranium um, to higher and higher levels. And so what the JCPOA did is it put limits on how many centrifuges Iran could have, their configuration. Basically, it said that there are limits on what, on what they can do. They can only produce fuel that can be used in their, their Bushehir nuclear power reactor, which produces electricity. That reactor relies on uranium enriched up to 3.5%. I know this is a little technical, um, so I can I can happily break it down more if you would like. Um, but so that's only enriched up to 3.5%. For a nuclear weapon, you need uh, uranium enriched up to about 90%. So there's a great difference there. And then as far as plutonium goes, so Iran did have a reactor that was a plutonium producing machine. There were civilian purposes or you know, for it that were research related. Um, but this was still a very dangerous reactor. So one of the amazing things about this deal is that uh, we actually were able to develop a new a new architecture for it that is even better. So the Iranian nuclear scientists were actually really excited about this new design because it allows them to do more do more research, do more uh, do more projects uh, than the other program would have allowed. And it significantly decreased um, any you know, any potential pathway to a nuclear bomb. A final piece of that is that there's spent fuel um, that usually just accumulates in a country and it, it accumulates in countries across the world. Iran is not the only one, um, but that was to be shipped out uh, likely to Russia for the entirety of that reactor's lifetime. Uh, so Iran does not have, you know, the technology to make that fuel dangerous and that fuel is also not in the country. The problem with spent fuel is that as long as it remains in the country, there could be a time 20, 30 years down the line where the leadership decides, okay, you know, we no longer want just a civilian program. We want a, we want a military program. At that point, 
that spent fuel could also, it could be used um, potentially in a military program. How is that monitored, the, ship, the shipping, shipment of uh, spent uh, nuclear waste? Uh, and also, you mentioned that countries that really don't like to, to store nuclear waste, especially like countries like the United States and, and Russia, they have so much of their own, and now they have to take on other countries. So how, how will be, we will be able to monitor this for the long term? Yeah. So there's an international body. It's known as the IAEA. Um, and they are, they're essentially international nuclear inspectors for the UN. They're, they're often called you know, a nuclear watchdog. Um, so through the Iran nuclear deal, they were granted access to, to this nuclear program that they have never been granted access. Not only are they able to get into the facilities, but we know how much uranium you know, Iran has, where it is, at what concentration it is. And we know that in real time. So because we know all of that, we are very confident that they are not able to divert that to a military program. So we can be fair, like very confident that Iran's civilian program remains civilian. There are also, for what it's worth, online enrichment monitors. I, this also is rather technical, but we are able to see all of this happening in real time. As far as spent fuel goes, there are IAEA nuclear inspectors on the ground every single day. So we are able to monitor all of this, and they do so in quarterly reports to the international community. Anybody can read these reports. So there is a whole lot of insight into this nuclear program that does not exist for any other nuclear program. Going to the, the spent fuel problem, this is one of the biggest problems with nuclear energy or in general. Um, we don't really know what to do with it because it takes so long to break down. It just remains a problem. So our best solution right now is, is storage. And so in the United States, we're actually trying to store it very deep underground. Um, and this is even more of a problem for our, you know, our weapons grade plutonium that we produced um, throughout the Cold War. So we're still trying to figure all of this out. Other countries are as well. Um, the best solution, particularly for countries that do not have nuclear weapons and are not allowed to have nuclear weapons, is to move that spent fuel ideally out of the country but it's a it is a politically difficult problem because no country wants to accept more than they can already manage, and we're already struggling to manage what we have now. So on uh, May 2018, the United States officially withdrew from the agreement after uh, President Donald Trump signed a pre presidential memorandum ordering the reinstatement of harsher sanctions. What are the consequences of this withdrawal? There are a lot of consequences. Um, so first, so you noted in May 2018, Donald Trump pulled out of the nuclear deal. All of the other countries remained in it. In fact, Iran remained compliant, even as it was facing maximum pressure sanctions from, from the United States for a full year. Only at that point did they start to make incremental steps back from the agreement. And they have gone the uranium enrichment route. So slowly, slowly, they have been essentially taking away all of the good that the nuclear deal did in order to get leverage in, you know, trying to get the United States to come back into the deal. And if there are future talks on, you know, if the deal is going to be extended, all of that. So they, they did all this to get, um, to get leverage, essentially. So the implications, though, are that Iran's nuclear program has advanced and it's much more threatening. And if there isn't a deal already, you know, the, US, the United States, um, U.S. Secretary of State Blinken has noted that, you know, there is only so long that this um, situation can go on, right? That there will come a time when the non-proliferation benefits of the nuclear deal might no longer exist. So, like, there is a, there is a timeline that we do need to, to meet. Um, there's also the humanitarian um, perspective that is so often missing from this conversation, because in reality... Um, sanctions don't really hurt the people that you might want to hurt. They end up hurting all of the civilians. So Iran's economy has been absolutely obliterated. And one of the dirty little secrets about sanctions is that they actually usually enrich the, you know, the entities that you might hope to uh, be targeting. So for instance, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, they have actually expanded their empire because they control, you know, the, the dark um, financial institutions. So anything that is not technically legal, this is where they have been able to really grow their power. So in some ways, 
Um, sanctions are a very effective tool, but used in the wrong way, particularly without any sort of multilateral support. Again, this is only the United States that has done this. All the other countries have not reimposed sanctions and are still a part of the deal. Uh, we've not seen that that sort of tactic has been effective in changing decision makers' minds. So this has really just hurt the wrong people and helped the people that we might want to, you know, reduce their power. Well, it seems to, to be the most vocal uh, naysayers about this, this deal is Israel. Uh, under Benjamin Netanyahu, former Prime Minister uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, he lobbied so hard to get rid of this deal and, and, and basically succeeded with uh, President uh, Trump. And, and now the new prime minister is coming here. I don't know if you saw this, but a recent article in the New York Times by Peter Beinart with the title, America needs to start telling the truth about Israel's nukes. He wrote, American politicians often warn that if Iran obtains a nuclear weapon, it will spark a nuclear stampede across the Middle East. Then he continues to say, Israel already has nuclear weapons. You just never know it from America's leaders who have spent the last half century feigning ignorance. This deceit undercuts America's supposed commitment to nuclear non-proliferation, and it distorts the American debate over Iran. It's time for the Biden administration to tell the truth. Do you agree with him? So it is a very, very complicated subject. And I'll go one further. This was another fact in that, in that piece, but that... Um, because of these policies, um, the more uh, there was a poll by the University of Maryland, I believe, and it found that more um, Americans believe that Iran has a nuclear weapon than than Israel, and Iran does not have a nuclear weapon. Um, but going back to the policy debate, so Israel's policy of nuclear opacity has been generally tolerated by both allies and adversaries. And this is because any formal recognition could upset the uneasy balance in the region, uh, potentially spurring nuclear proliferation across the Middle East. I know this, you know, this is the same argument that people make about Iran, um, but it is it still has been kind of the status quo. Um, and so it is I do want to be clear. It is not that we or anyone is unconcerned. We are greatly concerned, um, but it is also quite unlikely that we will get to the goal of a weapons of mass destruction free zone in the Middle East uh, without preventing further proliferation and dealing with regional issues. Um, a final key difference, although it is, I, I recognize it's, un, it's un, unpopular, is that Israel never signed the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which underpins the entire international you know, non-proliferation architecture. So for Iran or any other country um, who has signed the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, to pursue a nuclear weapon, that would undermine the international legal order uh, immensely. So we're really doing our best to make sure that there is no further proliferation, but there's also no great answer to, to that question. I know, but you, I mean, you're absolutely right, but uh, it seems that Israel gets a pass, right? Uh, in the United States, and they don't adhere to any IAEA, inspectors, uh, rules, and then there is that argument, you know, uh, well, if Israel has it, why not, why not Iran? If uh, when, when India uh, achieved, uh, you know, nuclear weapons, uh, Pakistan wanted to achieve parity. So, they, they, you know, so, so there is that balance, even the U USSR and, and the United States of uh, uh, establishing detente because of that parity. Uh, is this argument false? Uh, no, no. But it is one of politics, more or less. Uh, so just the from what we've at the least seen over the past number of decades, um, that there was a, there is a potential Israel nuclear weapons program. Um, no nuclear weapon has has been used. So for now, as far as, you know, steps moving forward, it is much better to try and find ways to to eliminate nuclear weapons, chemical and biological weapons as, as well. And so there are a couple of things we can do. One might be, you know, a fissile material cutoff treaty. Um, so this would be the idea that just no more fissile material is produced, um, uh, certainly at, at highly enriched uranium or plutonium levels. And so there are ways that it is possible for us to deal with this um, across the Middle East, all countries involved. Um, 
But for now, uh, it is, you know, trying to achieve those sorts of things, trying to come back to the table, um, you know, trying to get a, a nuclear weapons free zone or a, a WMD free zone in the Middle East, um, you know, having those discussions again, there is there is a possibility that this is actually moving forward. There was an Egyptian um, motion, I believe, but essentially there will be a, a conference every single year until there uh, is a nuclear weapons free zone in the Middle East. Um, just to deal with this specific issue. So hopefully it is not left anybody's minds and we can we can actually work to reduce all nuclear weapons. What's your read on uh, on Biden's next move now that he wants to resume uh, the negotiations, they stopped under Trump, and there is that gap that you, you talked about that gave Iran the extra time probably to enhance its program. So... Will the deal remain as is, or do you expect some changes to it? There's a little bit of uncertainty here. Um, so to to provide a little bit of context, so between April and June of this year, there were six rounds of indirect consultations in Vienna. So the parties of the nuclear deal, China, France, Germany, Russia, the United Kingdom, and Iran, they were all meeting. The United States was in Vienna, but they were only you know, con, um, coordinating essentially through intermediaries. So they weren't they weren't at the table because the United States is still not back in, in the deal. Um, but both sides have essentially been trying to figure out a roadmap for both the United States and Iran to return to compliance, ideally at the same time. This all stopped in June. So in June, Iran had a presidential election and their new president, uh, Ibrahim Raisi, has come to power. So there was a transition period and it was decided that there would be no more talks until after um, Raisi was sworn in. He was sworn in on August 5th. So at the moment, we are waiting for a signal um, for talks to reconvene in Vienna. Um, we have not received that signal yet, but both sides have continued to say that they are willing um, to return. It seems that, so Raisi is still confirming his cabinet. So that might be slowing the, slowing the process. Um, but for now, it really does seem that the ball is in Tehran's court. The United States has been very clear that they, they are ready to return to Vienna right now to talk as much as possible, even though it would be indirect. Um, so we are waiting on the Iranians to agree to go back to Vienna. At that point, I, I mean, the easiest, the easiest, the lowest hanging fruit is for both sides to return to compliance with the deal. Iranians, the Iranian leadership clearly wants sanctions relief, and the United States very much wants Iran's nuclear program back in the ironclad box of the nuclear deal, of the JCPOA. So for both sides to just agree to go back into compliance with a deal that is already there, there's no real reason to renegotiate it. Like that's the easiest thing. If that you know turns out to not be possible, then there aren't a whole lot of off-ramps to greater escalation. This could mean Iran's nuclear program could get even more threatening. It could advance even further. And it might be the case that the United States might respond uh, with, you know, either uh, more economic, more punitive economic sanctions, or, I mean, hopefully not, but possibly kinetic military action at some point. Um, so at that point, things can get even more tricky. So hopefully the leadership in both capitals can find an off-ramp and we can get back to the table. Do we know uh, or do you have an idea how advanced is Iran's nuclear program? So we do have an idea. So this is a bit of a... Uh, a tough calculation. So there's something known as the breakout period. And so this is the amount of time it would take for Iran just to accumulate the fissile material for a nuclear weapon. This is just the material. This is not the nuclear weapon. On top of this period, it would take well over a year, possibly two, um, kind of depending on um, the assumptions you know that are, are given. But for now, Iran's nuclear program, as far as the breakout period has gone, has reduced to only a couple of months. But this is also one of the 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 you know, the, the failures of the breakout period, you know, definition is that we're never really concerned about Iran saying, okay, you know, we're going to get a nuclear weapon now, right? That's not, that's not really what's possibly going to happen or any country. What is, you know, the real threat is that Iran has a secret military program and they attempt to sneak out. So that is why the, that was one reason why the breakout period that the JCPOA instilled, which was at that time, it was a full year, 
was really nice because we had a lot of time to potentially discover if they were doing anything that was not allowed. And there was time for either a diplomatic response or, if necessary, a military response. So there's less wiggle room now. Well, you remember the, I'm sure you remember that, the show and tell uh, that uh, former Prime Minister, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu did when he was at the United Nations with the bomb and showing you the different levels. There is that kind of like uneasiness about certain people that when they see something like this, it's kind of like gives them the message. You know, Iran is just like two weeks away or one month away from developing a nuclear bomb. I mean, is there a truth to this or just like just just, you know, propaganda? Right. So there there isn't. So even Israeli intelligence assesses that um, this would take for Iran to build a nuclear weapon. And this would be there are a whole bunch of assumptions with it, uh, a minimum of about a year and a half to two years. So that's that's for the actual nuclear weapon, the breakout period. And what Iran is using as ostensibly, um, you know, negotiating leverage is how much time it would take for them to get the fissile material necessary for a nuclear weapon. This is usually the hardest part. The other part is, of course, very difficult, um, but it's a lot harder for us to be able to track it because that could be done at a secret military facility, as whereas the dealing with the actual enriched uranium, that's usually that's um, that's done in a it's a lot easier to keep an eye on that sort of thing. So that's why so much of the nonproliferation community has been very focused on that issue. Um, so it, it it does seem it is it seems unrealistic to to make such assumptions. But you know, if you are a military planner, you know, potentially you might want to you know prepare for the worst case scenarios where they are much further beyond than anybody possibly knows. Although it is incredibly unlikely, not only is the U.S. intelligence community watching it closely, of course, Israel's nuclear intelligence community is watching it closely. There is satellite imagery that keeps an eye on everything. I mean, you may have heard in the news that China's uh, nuclear uh, silos, more uh, missile silos, have been discovered, and those have just been through open source, you know, intelligence analysts. Um, so this is just happening. You know, um, people who work in the open space or the open source community. Uh, so all of those are also those satellites are also trained on Iran. Um, it, it seems incredibly, incredibly unlikely that we have uh, completely misjudged this program. Samuel Hickey, thank you for coming on Arab Talk. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, that's the voice and the face of Mr. Samuel Hickey, analyst at the Center for Arms Control and Non-Proliferation, and his article in the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. Well, Jamal, it's good to hear scientists and uh, cogent analysis that argues against, again, the Israeli position to pull out of the negotiations with the Iranians on the Iran nuclear deal. This is something that, uh, you know, is flies in the face of the propaganda and the Hasbara coming from the Israeli side. Remember when Benjamin Netanyahu went to the United Nations and said that Iran is just like a few days away few or a few away. months away from having a nuclear bomb. Yeah. You, you know how many years this was? Yeah. How, that, how many years ago? What was that, five years this, ago, four years ago? Uh, and uh, that's the, the show and tell. So every, every year, every year, basically, Israel, the Israeli prime minister, and now it's uh, Neftali Bennett, it was Benjamin Netanyahu, comes to Washington or to the United Nations and starts warning the world that Iran is just about to start a nuclear war in the Middle East, which is totally nonsense. Had the United States and Barack Obama, you know, I mean, thanks actually to Barack Obama during that time, because he put all kinds of pressure on Barack Obama to cancel that deal. And had he canceled that deal and forced us to enter into a new war in the Middle East with Iran, it will be a major disaster. disaster. That's right. We know every single invasion or every single uh, interference that we played in the, the United States, be it now Afghanistan, and we see the net result after 20 years and after the death of more than 2,000 Americans and, and, and tens of thousands of Afghans and what happened in, in Iraq and even in Syria and in Libya. It's always a zero-sum game where, where we just actually end up losing, not even, is you know. It's not zero because we end up losing big time. And I would argue we lost big in Iraq. We're losing big. Well, I meant zero-sum, but like there is no gain in that except no. 
There's a e- lot. Except really to, to kind of save our face at the end. But we don't say, and, I mean, and, the United States doesn't. And it's doesn't embarrassment. Say, right. And the United States doesn't save face. They've lost credibility internationally. They've lost credibility in the Middle East and the Arab world in North Africa, Jamal. We know that. The trust or the lack of trust with the United States being a legitimate uh, broker and arbiter, that pool of people who believe that, regimes that believe it, is getting smaller and smaller by the day. But this situation uh, of Naftali Bennett coming to the United States trying to speak and coerce and cajole and do whatever he thinks he's going to do with President Biden, I think is going to fail yet again, because there's another subtext to why Naftali Bennett is here in the United States, Jamal, is because the Israeli spy agencies under Benjamin Netanyahu cooled in terms of their openness to let U.S. spy agencies in on their information. In fact, after Joe Biden was elected president and, you know, he's been in office now how many months, you know, eight months Uh, There's been a cooling of relations between the two spy agencies, which has infuriated American American intelligence uh, services. And, you know, when you look at that history, Jamal, it's an ugly history for U.S. intelligence services. You know, the biggest breaches of American intelligence and the, you know, the people who have um, basically – you know, uh, ratted on the United States have been Israelis, you know, the biggest spy who turned on his own country. We, you know, we, we've we been talking about that for years. And now the, you know, the... You mean Jon- Jonathan Pollard? Jo- Jonathan Just, uh, Pollard, yeah. I mean, and he was released under uh, President Trump, you know, the biggest spy to be captured this uh, dual uh, American-Israeli citizen who was spying for the Israeli government while he was working for the Navy Intelligence Services here in the United States. Having said all that, you know, Naftali Bennett doesn't have much to stand on. I mean, you know, what is he going to negotiate? No one believes him. He's uh, The Israelis are like chicken little. They're saying the sky is falling with Iran. It's not... Um, you know, the Iranians have a lot of challenges right now. They're not anywhere close to what the Israelis have been saying for years now. And, you know, the intelligence services in the United States are basically very cool towards the Israelis because they feel let down yet again. Not only do they get spied on by Israelis, but now they're not being, now the intelligence is not being shared. Does that really sound like a wonderful ally to have, Jamal? Absolutely not. And let's not forget the background and history of Naftali Bennett, which, by the way, just a reminder that he has roots in the San Francisco Bay Area. That's, That's right. where his family originates from. But his background, he's, he's, he's someone who has advocated the expulsion and the transfer and the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians. He's part and parcel of why Israel is now labeled as an apartheid state right. by Human Rights Watch, by its own human rights organization, uh, Salem and, and others. I mean... Maybe this is another side of the story is a Hasbara campaign to whitewash Israel and to whitewash Benjamin, I mean, uh, uh, Bennett, Bennett, Naftali Bennett is coming here like, you know, look at me. I'm so reasonable. I'm just like you. I'm for peace. I'm I'm peace loving. I'm 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 a nice guy. I mean, they need to do this because, as you know, the latest... uh, uh, reports and latest stats from the American uh, Jews, uh, their love for Israel and especially Naftali Bennett uh, has been disappearing very, very That's rapidly. Right. That's right, Jamal. That's exactly right. And what is the classic Israeli prime minister move when they're having their uh, poll numbers sink? You know, the first impulse is to come to the United States and get a photo op. And then the second impulse is to start a war. And we know that Naftali Bennett has been amassing the Israeli military in and around uh, the Gaza border. They're beating the drumbeats of war yet again, Jamal. And I, I, I'm, I don't like to predict things because I'm usually right, but I hate to say this. But, you know, this could be another politically expedient opportunity for Naftali Bennett to raise his poll numbers by killing more innocent civilians, you know, in Gaza. 
spot on. I mean, he needs to raise his numbers in within the Israeli public, and that goes just as usual by showing that he's the tough guy on Palestinians and starting a war. He has to also raise his numbers right here in the United States with the help of APAC and other surrogates in Congress to put the pressure on Biden because actually I'm a little bit worried because Biden's you know popularity is sinking because of Afghanistan, right? Uh, which which I'm not against the withdrawal. I think the withdrawal is good. Maybe the 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 execution part was bad. Eventually, the United States had to leave Afghanistan, but his popularity has shifted a little bit. So he's in a little bit weak position, and now pro- they they're going to try to squeeze him for some concessions, and that's. That's kind of the fear, because as, as I've mentioned, we don't need another war in the Middle East. Uh, just a quick update here. I was looking at, you know, what you started earlier talking about Kabul, multiple explosions that happened. There are American casualties and possibly some British casualties. At least three U.S. Marines are among uh, the injured. And uh, the State Department just issued, uh, I'm sorry, the, the Pentagon Press Secretary, John Kirby, just tweeted saying that the explosions were at the Abbey Gate and a result of a complex attack that resulted, he's confirming, in a number of U.S. US and civilian casualties. Uh, we can also confirm that at least one other explosion or at or near the Baron the Baron Hotel, a short distance from Abigate, also happened. So, so this is we don't have all the numbers, but it, it doesn't look good, Jess. Yeah, I have a little bit more information about that, Jamal. So, the the Baron Hotel is about 150 meters away from the Abbey Gate, and so what's been happening more recently on the ground is that the United States has been telling secretly, apparently. Uh, American citizens and other people needing to evacuate that at that is to be at that hotel because there's a there's basically a 20 meter blast wall uh, walkway from the hotel to Abbey Gate and uh, unfortunately it looks like um, what happened although this is not independently confirmed it's just based on what I've been able to get from certain sources is that there is a there is underground sewage, you know, uh, walkways there that may have been il- infiltrated by these alleged ISIS-K terrorists to blow up that walkway while people were trying to go from the hotel to the Abbey Gate and, you know, be evacuated. But the situation there remains very tense. The ISIS-K uh, group is, if you can believe this, Jamal, they're, they make uh, the Taliban look like they're moderates. I mean, this is an extremely uh, extremist. That's that's repetitive, but it's a, a deeply extremist uh, group that you know is at odds with the Taliban. If you can believe that, for not being extremist enough, they're the leftovers from ISIS in Iraq and to some extent Syria, and you know they're in Kabul right now. So the situation is fluid. It's dynamic. It's dangerous. And guess what, Jamal? August 31st is just around the corner and the Americans will be gone by the 31st. And, you know, I don't know if we're going to be able to, you know, get those 1,500 American citizens out. For sure, we're not going to get out the tens of thousands of um, SIV, special interest visa, Afghan uh, residents out. That's just not going to happen in three days. Well, we'll keep an eye on this situation. You're listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco 89.5 FM. Going back to what's going on, Palestine, Israel, just uh, hundreds of Palestinians have demonstrated near the Israeli wall that's built uh, outside the besieged Gaza Strip, calling on Israel basically to lift the, the crippling blockade you know, uh, and 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 so they've had a confrontation. Uh, the Israeli military uh, has beefed up its forces in advance of the demonstration, which started last weekend and continued through through today. Actually, firing live ammo at at the at the crowds. And Palestinian medics uh, have reported that at least nine people were 
wounded yesterday yeah. and more than 40 were wounded by Israeli fire during Saturday's demonstrations, including a 13-year-old uh, uh, youth who was shot uh, in the health. This is coming from the health ministry. And then one of the wounded, uh, 32-year-old, died of a bullet wound. Just you know where the bullet wound in the leg. And and you know, you know, most people don't die from a bullet wound in the leg. We've talked about this. Well, unless before. you Let's unless be- you hit an artery. Well, also you don't allow the medics to reach you. Exactly. You keep sniping at the medics. So the poor guy bled to death basically because Israel does not allow the medics to reach which uh, is the a, wounded. Which is a war crime, Jamal, to not allow medical personnel to tend well, to they've the killed, wounded. Well, they've killed medics. We right. know that, right? So so also an Israeli soldier was critically wounded when a Palestinian shot him in the head through a hole. There was a video that has been shared all over the Internet. You know, on the wall, they have these holes, and these Israeli snipers stick their whatever rifles um or machine guns through these holes. And so uh, uh, Palestinians have been trying to walk near the wall and hit their, basically the end of their guns with sticks, with whatever, try to damage the guns. And then uh, uh, in this video, there was a Palestinian who came with a handgun and stuck his hand in the hole and shot the guy right in the in the head. So that's why kind of Israel is like, Deftali Bennett gave orders to really start bombing and targeting Hamas, even though Hamas is not involved. Right. Like, this is a popular uprising. This is not... This dri- is a popular uprising. Right. You're shooting at the people, and then you get one Israeli... I mean, people retaliate eventually, and they and they retaliated. And of course, when we talk about this blockade, uh, just the crippling blockade has been ongoing since 2007. That's right, Jamal, 2007. And, 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 that's 13 years, 14 years now. And... Um, you know, that shows no sign of uh, letting up. We should also, uh, just just to be fair about this, acknowledge the fact that part of the blockade, in fact, does get support from uh, President Sisi of Egypt because goods and services coming on the, Ga- on the Gaza-Egyptian side of the equation are very heavily monitored uh, with the cooperation of the Israeli intelligence and military. So the Egyptians are also participating, unfortunately, in keeping that blockade going. I, w- I did want to ask... Well, you should, you should talk about why the blockade uh, to begin with, because that actually is a segue f- to our next topic. Yes. And the blockade happened because Hamas... Won. Won the elections. <laughs> right. You know, so, so here we go back to right. the last kind of last popular elections that happened in Palestine. That's right. Which actually had international monitors, including certification by the Carter uh, Foundation, That's by right. President Car- Ca- right. Carter at the time said that they sent their monitors and these were Hamas one fair and square and of course the United States Israel uh, and Fatah party and others did not like the results so that's why you know they had the blockade they've gotten gotten rid of the um, the elected prime minister uh, Ismail Haniyeh at, at the time and uh, and that's why we have that that blockade i mean did not come out of nothing. And the reason I mentioned that, because since 2007, we haven't had any elections. The elections were supposed to happen this year. We talked about that. We had our guest, Diana Bhutto. We have right. others. And, and of course, the cancellation of the Palestinian elections and the huge, you know, there is a huge drop of support for the Palestinian leadership. Not that it had a lot of support. And of course, it's subdued response to what's happening in Jerusalem and Gaza as Israel is ethnically, ethnically cleansing Palestinian families in Sheikh Jarrah and Silwan and attacking Gaza. Uh, they don't have any, any popularity. So, the, so there, was, there was a talk about having some elections. And the, the elections, when we talked about Abu Mazen, he always comes back and says, oh, we're going to have elections, fair, fair elections. Uh, we're gonna, it's going to end up in a national unity, unity uh, government. Yeah. And of course, this is all, all just nonsense and hot air. It is hot and air. Then, and then came the June 24th beating and death of Nizar Banat. That's right. 
you know, so so this is all. So so who, by the way, was slated to run in the elections? He was a candidate, and and he was beaten to death. There is no accountability. I haven't heard of anyone Nothing. getting arrested. Nothing. Or or brought to justice or Nothing. anything like this. They're 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 brushing it on under under rug. So, what's been happening, Jess, is, you know, when when Plan A does not work, you go to Plan B. When Plan B does not work, you try Plan C. So this is the game that, uh, unfortunately, uh, Mahmoud Abbas has been playing: promising elections, canceling elections, and then he said, "Well, no, you know what? We'll we'll change the cabinet." You know, this is this is something that many despots actually use in the Middle East. When when their popularity sinks, they take it on the on the ministry and they right. they change the prime minister so to kind of calm down. So he said he was going to change the cabinet, but keep the current prime minister. Shtayi. you know he he said he'll he'll keep him there. Then there was a leak, so people kind of like said said okay no elections all right things are bad. We're suffering from the coronavirus. We haven't seen any improvement. We haven't seen any improvement as far as peace negotiations. Israel keeps attacking us and keep uh, they keep taking more of our land. Let's see, maybe there is a new cabinet that's going to come. And then there was a leak, by the way, uh, details that uh, was shared by pro, the pro-PLO Man News uh, Agency, um, basically showing how the cabinet structure was going to be mainly keeping the Fatah loyalists and Abbas loyalists just basically changing, playing musical chairs, you know, just so they're like changing the chairs. And so they, they published this. And because the, 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 the announcement of the new government was slated for August 20th on Friday. So yeah. last Friday they were yeah. supposed to announce them. And then the leak came and then Abbas and the... They suddenly and the central committee said said oh okay well uh, let's wait we're not gonna we're not gonna change anything so now plan A is dead plan B is dead I don't know what's plan well, I'll, C I'll tell you what I'll tell you what plan C is Jamal it's a very easy plan C do nothing Mahmoud Abbas stays his cronies stay the the people in Palestine uh, continue to suffer at the hands of totally irresponsible uh, governance and, uh, you know, government I- infrastructure. And there will be nothing happening. You know, you and I have talked about this for years. There'll, nothing will happen until Mahmoud Abbas passes on. Um, he's going to stay in power till his last breath. His cronies are going to stay in power till their last breath. Nothing, unfortunately, would change. And you know, we've never shied away from criticizing the Palestinian Authority for their complete ineptitude at being able to govern. It's a joke. They are a joke. And this leak and this description of what uh, Mahmoud Abbas is doing is not surprising, but unfortunately disappointing yet again for Palestinians who are dealing with occupation, who are dealing with economic hardship, who are dealing with the COVID pandemic, and they have to deal with this inept kind of governance. It's it's a sad situation. Well, and then the sad thing about it, instead of like keeping quiet and and and, and right. fine, they want to bury their head in right. heads in the sand. They continued uh, just arresting people. Exactly. Uh, at least twenty four Palestinians exactly. were arrested, exactly. including uh, prominent names like poet Zakaria Muhammad. Uh, an architect, Khaldun Bishara, was arrested. Filmmaker Muhammad Al-Attar was arrested. Uh, Palestinian-American, he's a Palestinian-American activist. And, and, uh, and you know, and, and, and others. So it's not like, so anyone who criticizes the action of the Palestinian Authority or criticizes the fact that Mahmoud Abbas has not, uh, has, has not held, uh, held any elections since uh, he took power, and they end up in jail. They end up interrogated. So the death of uh, of Banat not only not only is not being investigated or anyone or 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 brought anyone into justice. They are co- continuing arresting and intimidating and intimidating intimidating people. And that's why I want to mention. And this is I uh, will will post that tweet uh, that um, even. Palestinian uh, American 
Rashida Tlaib, and uh, who's uh, you know Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, uh, U.S. Representative for Michigan's 13 congressional district since 2019, and the only Palestinian American, I should say, <laughs> in Congress. So if you need an ally, you know, for the Palestinian Authority or for Mahmoud Abbas, there is one ally probably and she's in not, the entire entire and she's Congress. Not an ally. She tweeted a direct message to Mahmoud Abbas, and I'm going to read it, okay? Shame on you for, she, she starts by saying, dear President Abbas, shame, shame on you for suppressing Palestinian voices who are trying to seek liberation from not only the Israeli apartheid government, but from your corrupt leadership. Well said, Rashida. That's big, Jess. Well, not only is it I mean, not only is it big, Jamal, it's true, it's clear, but I, I will also say that for her to tweet something like that not only takes courage, but it will completely disarm her critics who say that she's just a Palestinian apologist. That is not a Palestinian apologist. This is a woman who's committed to justice and equality, and she has no problem criticizing the apartheid regime of Israel, and she has no problem criticizing the corrupt government uh, of Mahmoud Abbas. So we have to give her a lot of credit when credit is due, and I'm hoping this silences some of her outrageous critics. Yeah, I mean, uh, I wasn't surprised because I've, I, I know what she stands for, but they should be surprised, and they're not, and they're not repentant because. No, they're unrepentant. Uh, what I'm going to tell you, right? What I'm going to tell you uh, is not going to shock you. But uh, one of the uh, spokespeople, the, the, the name escapes me now, said that she's persona non grata in Palestinian in Palestine. Uh, I have breaking news for that uh, spokesperson. <laughs> Rashida Tlaib has just as much claim to Palestine as this spokesperson, and her. Grandmother still lives in Palestine, and she has deep roots in Palestine. So it's an outrage, and it's not for this corrupt official to decide who is persona non grata or not. It's an outrageous thing to say. But we'll follow this. I mean, story. not only she had to 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 kind of uh, struggle. If you remember last time, she wanted to go with a congressional delegation, right. and she got and she Israel got, refused refused right. to let her in unless right. she signed uh, some ludicrous. Uh, statement and now you need the uh, someone from the West Bank to tell her you cannot come here when yeah. they actually have zero control over the border zero. that's that's the funny thing yeah. Mahmoud Abbas cannot travel in and out of Palestine cross through the Alenbi bridge or Sheikh Hussein bridge into Jordan without approval from Israeli Jamal, authorities he can't leave Ramallah without permission from the Israelis so yeah i mean so so they, they just keep making themselves look bad by the by the minute not by the day yeah well We'll continue to be following following all these stories, Jamal. There's will be ongoing breaking news in Afghanistan and in Palestine. One thing we didn't get to is just the tension that's going on between the Israelis at the border with Lebanon and Hezbollah. So lots of news to cover, and uh, we'll be following it on all of our episodes here. You've been listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco 89.5 FM. Go to our website, arabtalkradio.com, to watch all of uh, all our shows. See you next week. See you next week. <laughs>